What is up, everybody? So welcome back to the Long Lens Podcast. This is the podcast where I answer questions from my YouTube community. So this is episode number two, and it's kind of crazy. I definitely underestimated how many questions I would get when I put out the little Q&A announcement. So I got a lot of questions and we're going to start it off with my Patreon supporters. If you want to support me on Patreon, one of the perks is that I am going to read your questions first and I'll also reference who you are. So I'll, you know, tell you the name of the person who asked this question. Okay. So let's start with our Patreon questions. And a lot of them came in from Tony Selium. I hope that's pronounced right. Tony Selium. So his first question is, I believe you indicated gigs in the past like weddings. Many cameras haven't had dual card slots to write simultaneously. Were you ever worried about losing data or corrupt cards or whatever for one-time events like that? And how do you manage that risk? Yeah, I use the GH3 for weddings a lot. And honestly, that camera had never let me down. So that's nice. But I always had two cameras running. So whenever I stopped recording on one, I would make sure that I was recording on another. So that's how I didn't worry about the risk is that I always had two cameras going at the same time. All right, Tony also asks, how many nits do you think is enough for screens, like a camera or monitor, to use outdoors? For example, the BMPCC 4K screen is 800 nits for which many content creators indicate it's not enough. Some external monitors are 800 nits. How many nits do you think is enough for outdoor usage? Um, Honestly, I used the BMPC 4K outside and I thought it was fine. My little EM1 Mark II isn't the brightest screen, but I mean, I just use the EVF if I need to. I think the 800 nits is probably like the bare minimum. Most outdoor monitors are like a thousand nits, but I think the 800 is enough. If you had a BMPCC 4K and you're still struggling, then maybe, you know, figure out some kind of a hood solution for it or just invest in a brighter monitor. But yeah, a thousand nits, I think, is what you want to be looking for when you're viewing a monitor outside, especially in like really, really sunny days. Here in Oregon, it's like overcast all the time, so I can get away with not having a super bright screen. All right, another question from Tony is, I think many of your previous cameras were somewhat lacking in continuous autofocus for video, yet you shot weddings and skateboarding, which can both be dynamic. How did you approach focus in those situations? Uh, So for my GH3 and GH4 and GH5 and even my old Canon cameras, I would just use like I would push the shutter to focus and then I would just try to make sure I wouldn't move too much from that focus point. It's really easy to do like back button focusing on like the GH3 and stuff like that, which is what I would use a lot. So I would just have my AE button as the focus button and I would just press it. It would pulse a little bit, find focus, and then I just hit record. So that's how I did it there. But now with the EM1 Mark II, I don't have to worry about having bad autofocus anymore because this camera is really good with autofocus. Are you getting adequate ROI on your affiliate program efforts. Yeah, I definitely think so. The return is definitely good and the investment is basically just me, you know, organizing all the links that I need and putting them in my description. So I definitely think that's a pretty good ROI. Are you keeping anything from your Panasonic Lumix MFT era? Uh, Right now, the only thing that I've really kept is my trusty DJI 15mm f1.7, but everything else save for like a couple of battery chargers and I have like a dummy battery for the GH3 and GH4 that is basically useless to me. But yeah, other than this little DJI 50 millimeter, it's the only thing that I still have from that Lumix era. All right, it's another question from Tony. You recently covered your Fast 7 Artisan cinematic lens, mentioning some potential for chromatic aberration at the end of the aperture range. 
I don't know if it will be significant enough for me. If it is, can it be addressed in post like Lightroom or DaVinci? So a chromatic aberration can be pretty easily fixed in Lightroom or Photoshop. I'm not 100% certain if it can be completely eliminated in a video editor because there's a lot of photo editing programs that can, you know, like single out that, that purple, you know, fringing that happens and kind of get rid of it, but it's a little harder to do when you're shooting video. So yes, for photos, I'm honestly not too sure with videos. All right, last question from Tony. He said, you shared that vintage primes were not optimized for MFT. What negative issues may arise having vintage primes on an MFT sensor, even with Metabone's speed boosters? Yeah, so the only reason I said that is because you have to use speed boosters to get more out of them. Micro Four Thirds sensors are like way smaller than 35 millimeter film. So when you're using lenses that are designed to cover a 35 millimeter like film stock, you're losing a lot of the lens on the outside. So the Micro Four Thirds sensor is only really gonna be focusing in on the middle of the lens, which kind of defeats the purpose because that means that a 50 millimeter is gonna give you the equivalent of like a 100 millimeter, which 100 millimeters is kind of hard to shoot with. So that's the only reason that I said that. Um, some other things are just, you know, fungus and haze with older lenses. Whereas with the, you know, the seven artisans lens that I, was referencing in that video, it's not gonna have any of those problems because it's a brand new lens. Okay, this next question is from Alex Miner, and he's got a pretty cool YouTube channel as well. He does a lot of business talk for his freelance work, so if you wanna go check Alex's videos out, definitely go and do so. And he asks, do you still do client work on a regular basis or are you a full-time YouTuber? What are you, all of your revenue streams? So. I do client work very, very sparsely. Like I did a really quick gig for my wife's boss, who's a chiropractor. But uh, other than that, I haven't done a freelance gig in a while. The beginning of 2020 is when I kind of went, you know, full-time on YouTube. And I've basically been able to make YouTube work for me as a full-time gig ever since with a few, you know, occasional freelance gigs here and there. But yeah, I just do YouTube full-time and I'm really stoked that it's working out. All my revenue streams is, I think I covered it in my last podcast, but I have Google AdSense, which is probably the low end of all my revenue, and then sponsorships, affiliate links, and I think that's it. Yeah, sponsorships, affiliate links, and Google AdSense. Sometimes I have affiliates from like places that are other than Amazon. So like, you know, I do affiliates with eBay and with Adorama and stuff like that. So yeah. Those are all my revenue streams, and thankfully they've been braining enough to support me and my wife, so I'm stoked on that. All right, that was all of the questions for Patreon. Again, if you'd like to support me on Patreon, I'll have a link in the show notes of this episode. For the $2 tier, basically you get your name in the description of my videos as kind of like a collaborator with me, and that's like level one. You also get my LUTs on my website, the $5 LUTs, you get all those for free. But if you jump up one tier to the $10 a month, then you get behind the scenes videos, you get all the LUTs for free, obviously, you get your name in my descriptions, and you'll get live streams when I do them, and you'll be able to get your questions answered here on the podcast. So with that out of the way, let's go over to Instagram. And I got a few questions on Instagram here. Biggest unexpected obstacle when becoming a YouTuber. Biggest obstacle was definitely playing the YouTube game. Uh, I really am not into that 
whole thing and it's kind of annoying, but that's definitely the biggest hurdle is making the clickbaity titles and doing the stupid thumbnails. That's like the biggest obstacle and kind of just dealing with the fact that I'm just kind of filming by myself a lot and I'm not actually like making content for other people. I'm making content for my subscribers. That was kind of an interesting like turn to like what I was doing. Not necessarily an obstacle, but definitely a change. Why are you my YouTube idol? I mean, I, I, I hope I'm not. <laughs> I don't think I'm that good. What was your biggest obstacle you had when starting photography and videography? Uh, the biggest obstacle was basically just getting over imposter syndrome. I've been doing this for 15 years. Well, probably more than that now. And I still kind of feel like I don't know what I'm doing. So that's definitely the biggest obstacle. <laughs> Should creators find a niche and be singular in their focus or diversify to pay the bills? If you're starting a channel that is got its own niche, then I would definitely say stick within that niche on that channel because otherwise your subscribers won't really know what they're signing up for when they subscribe to you. But if you have other interests, consider starting a different channel and you know putting your interests into a different channel maybe. Uh, that's what I did anyways. Like I really like camping and hiking and van life, so I started a second channel. It's called Outpost 33 if you wanna go check it out, but that's all gonna be dedicated to van life and camping and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't wanna post any of that on my main channel because that's not what people who subscribed to me were signing up for. They wanted like, you know, filmmaking and budget video gear content. So how many videos did you make before you found your voice style and look? Honestly, probably over a hundred. I still feel like I'm not necessarily where I want to be as far as like my voice and my style, but uh, the look that I have with my YouTube videos, I feel like I think I'm okay with. I don't like all of like the, you know, crazy colors and stuff like that in the background of my A-roll shots. I like it to just be very natural and look like someone actually lives and works out of their office. So that's what I kind of do. I keep all the colors really natural and the lighting very soft. So um, that's just the one thing is that like, I feel like I kind of needed to pull away from the idea of, you know, putting a bunch of crazy RGB lights in the background, like a lot of other YouTube creators do that just didn't really fit my style. And after I kind of pulled away from that and just kept my colors more muted and natural, that's when I really liked how my YouTube videos were looking. All right. This is the last batch from Instagram. My room is small to record videos and the windows destroy my light. What can I do? If you have a really small room, I would say try to either completely black out your window or try to work with it. So if you're in a small room, doesn't matter what room you're in, I would say try to shoot into the L of your room or shoot into the corner because that'll create more depth even if you're not, you know, getting that much further away from the wall than you were before. It'll just create that sense of depth if you shoot into the corner of your room. And then yeah, black out the windows, use, you know, consistent lighting. That'll help, but you can also look at a lot of my videos. I keep my windows, my blinds open, and then I light from that side where the window is, and that kind of motivates my key light. So even if the the light level is changing outside, the light on me won't be. So that's just one thing that I think looks a little bit more natural if you're gonna try to use the window light to create some ambience in your room. All right, best affordable light. Well, I would say if you want the cheapest light, then I think the Godox SL60W is probably your best bet. Uh, you can't run it off of battery power. It has to be plugged into a wall, but really good quality light. It's got a Bones mount and it's a great starter. 
How do you prevent gear obsession that blocks you from actually creating? Well, I would say the best thing to fight against gear obsession is making stuff with gear that isn't good and being stoked on it. The only thing that's really stopping anyone from making something that looks great, regardless of what camera they have, is going to be experience and knowledge. So, you know, I could give all of my camera gear to my wife and she wouldn't know what to do with it, but I could take my wife's iPhone and make something that, that looks pretty good. I'm pretty confident that I can. And I feel like a lot of the times, you know, when I was still shooting with my GH3 and I was, you know, like lighting my stuff and making stuff like look really good. And a lot of people were, you know, amazed that it was even a GH3 that I was shooting with. That that's what really gets me stoked and that's what prevents me from like feeling like I need a better camera because if I can make stuff that people are stoked on with a GH3 then I don't really need anything more than that and even now like I like the autofocus of my EM1 Mark II but sometimes I still want to go back to the GH3 because it's just enough of a camera to make stuff that looks good and most people don't care when the quality surpasses that so yeah, try to make stuff that looks good regardless of the camera that you have. You know, like focus on your lighting, focus on your composition, focus on your color grading, because all that stuff can be improved without having to buy the craziest gear. So, and I think that's all from Instagram. So now let's go to my community page on YouTube. And that's where the most questions were asked. All right, what are your future plans? Maybe more produced content collabs. Love your work, my man. Proud to see you grow as much as you have. Thank you. Um, yeah, my future plans is to try to leverage the fact that I have a little bit of a following on a YouTube channel to get gear and actually make some spec commercials with that gear. Not crazy expensive gear, but just gear that I don't want to you know, purchase myself, which I actually, there's a couple of things in the works that I'll be able to make some spec projects on and it should be pretty fun. So I want to keep doing that and just kind of show people that like, even with a budget camera, I'm going to do it all with my EM1 Mark II. Even with something like this, you can still make stuff that, you know, clients will be happy with. What kind of videos do your clients hire you to make? What is the majority of your work? So back when I was doing freelance work, majority of my work was weddings and I would do the occasional like small business promotional video, but yeah, mostly weddings. I know it's kind of weird. I'm like a, you know, escape filmer who transitioned into making, you know, lovey-dovey wedding videos, but it turns out that like I was actually pretty decent at it and my clients like the videos that I make. So, yeah, that's what I did for the most part was make wedding videos. And after I was done making wedding videos, I made a lot of promotional and educational content for a skate ministry when I was working for them. So that's what I did. And now I'm a YouTuber. All right. Just a random one. How do you feel about rebranding your company, your name and offer slightly from filmmaking in general into into more like an online store, some simple web design, still film, maybe 3D generated stills? I'm into that spot where I wish I could start over, some fresh ideas, no longer stay unmotivated while grinding the same thing over and over again. Yeah, I would say if you're going to rebrand and do something else and kind of turn into, I think what you're asking is like, if you want to rebrand what you're currently doing and just try to do something else, maybe consider instead of rebranding, the person that asked this, uh, it seems like they have like an actual brand that they you know, like, you know, put all their stuff behind. So I would say consider maybe just like branching out just as an individual so that people will know you as the person that, you know, does the things that you want to do. And then you can just, you know, you can start selling yourself as a brand 
instead of, I don't know, like a name above you, you could just be like your own thing. And then you can be hired to do the stuff that you actually want to do. That's all I can really say on that. Sorry if that's not a very good answer. (laughs) How many cups of sugar does it take to get to the moon? I am not the person for that question. How has the past two years slash pandemic affected your business or ability to create outside of YouTube? How did you adapt or work with local restrictions in place? Thanks. And what the F, I forgot you had a podcast. (laughs) Yeah, well, don't, don't beat yourself up. I just started this podcast, so no worries. Yeah, the past two years... I started going full-time on YouTube the beginning of 2020, so right as the pandemic started. So I haven't really been affected by it that much. I, I, like, I wasn't relying on finding clients or you know filming weddings or anything like that during these past two years. So I didn't really have to worry about it that much, which I was pretty stoked on. And my YouTube channel was growing a lot in these past two years. So as far as like the restrictions and stuff here in Oregon, they weren't really super strict. So, I mean, I still like, even during the pandemic, I would still drive out into the middle of nowhere by myself and film YouTube videos and stuff like that. Hope that answers your question. Any update on a new cheap camera review? Yeah, I got a couple that I'm thinking about reviewing. Uh, it's just, the problem is, you know, putting a different spin on it because there's so many cameras that are cheap that other people have already talked about. Like I've thought about doing the, you know, like the EOS M, you know, and shooting raw with that, but there are so many people that shoot with that camera and it just, I don't know what I have to add yet to a camera like that. So before I review another cheap camera, I'm going to make sure that I, like I have an angle that I can come at it with. What's the process of getting brands to send you products for free to review and how many subscribers should you have before reaching out to companies to do brand deals? Thanks, Nigel. That's a really good question. And I actually have been wanting to do a video on this because I feel like it's a little bit of a mystery to some people, but brands will start reaching out to you at any stage of your YouTube career. So if you've done a review on something, chances are there's going to be brands, whether it's big ones or small little Chinese brands that will like, you know, reach out to you and want to send you something for free. I have never actually reached out to a brand and asked them to send me anything. Everything that's been sent to me has been them reaching out to me, which I always like, because then it's like, you know, the cards are kind of, or I guess the chips are in my favor. I don't know what the saying is, but it's kind of nice because if I don't like it, I'll just say, hey, listen, I'm just going to send it back to you because I didn't want it in the first place. You sent it to me and I don't like it, so I'm going to send it back. But yeah, if you want companies to start reaching out to you, just start doing more reviews on stuff that other brands are making. So the first review that I did where I had someone send it to me was actually from Comica. They saw that I did a review on a Tackstar microphone, and so they sent me their VM10, which I still have that VM10 to this day because I like it so much. So yeah, you don't need to have any subscriber. I mean, you could have 10 subscribers, just start making reviews. And if you want to go the route where you start reaching out to companies, just make sure you have a few reviews of stuff that you already own under your belt and then send them to them like, Hey, listen, I already did this video and it, you know, performed pretty well for the size of my channel. Like, you know, would you be willing to send me a product that you want? Like say it's a microphone, like, Hey, I already did a review on this road microphone and your microphone looks like it's just as good for, you know, cheaper. Let me review it or whatever. For the most part, I feel like brands want free promotion, which is basically what it is. It's just going to cost them the price of shipping it and the price of the actual product. So if you're going to make a video that lives on YouTube forever, they see that as a win. So yeah, that's what I would say.
Where do you practice starting video shooting? If I already have a camera that can shoot video, I do photography daily, but I wanna get better in video too. If you have friends, just go out with them and start shooting, start seeing how light falls on someone's face, the best way to you know get better angles. That's what I would do a lot, is I would always go out and hike with my friends and just say, hey, can I like shoot you shooting photos or can I shoot you filling up your water bottle at the stream or whatever? And then you can just kind of practice, you know, composition and you can practice backlighting and stuff like that. That's what I would say. Then you can still do it too and just, you know, film inanimate objects, but you can practice your composition. And what that's going to do is it's going to help you see what looks good and how you can compose the subject of your image in the frame where it's actually going to look good. So that's what I would say, but it definitely helps if you have people to film because I feel like for the most part, a lot of us are doing work that involves filming other people. So do you own your own skate park? Some of your vids, you have an indoor skate park all to yourself. Looks amazing. <laughs> uh, I wish that was actually a skate warehouse owned by the skate ministry that I worked for for the longest time it's called Skate Church. And I had keys to the warehouse and I was allowed to go and just skate and film there whenever I want to. We don't have it anymore though. We actually lost that warehouse in the process of finding another one though. So that's fun. Uh, but yeah, no, I don't own my own skate park. That would be insane though. What would the one sentence that can sum up your philosophy, your way of living? The thing, one constant thing that emerges through your videos. That's a pretty good question. I would say the one thing that I would say that kind of sums up my philosophy on videos is technique is much more important than technology. And what I mean by that is you could have the best stuff ever, but if you don't know what you're doing, the best equipment isn't gonna help you. So focus on your technique, don't worry so much about the technology that's in your hands and you'll be a much better filmmaker because of it. Are you a Christian? Yes, I am. I am a believer. What is your most used piece of gear? Best A camera and what is one piece of gear you thought you were going to use a lot but didn't? Best piece of gear? Honestly, I'm probably going to say either my DJI 15mm or my Olympus 12-40. I like both of these lenses equally and they're great and they are not insanely expensive either. Other than those, I would say maybe my Zoom H1N. That's what I'm recording on right now, and I've had this for years, and it's great. It's a multi-use tool. I mean, it's a USB mic, it's a audio recorder, and it can be used as an actual mic too if you just run the line out right into your camera. So yeah, I don't know. The Zoom H1 is probably my most used piece of gear right now. One piece of gear that I bought that I thought I was gonna use a lot that I didn't is probably my DJI Ronin SC. It's not a bad gimbal, I just don't use gimbals that often. And especially now with the EM1 Mark II, this camera is so good with its image stabilization that most of the time I don't need a gimbal. So I still have it, I'm probably gonna end up selling it though because I just don't use it enough. Newbie question, I know the 180 degree shutter rule is the rule of thumb, but more for still life, establishing shots where it's more landscape with no subject in movement. Do you ever break this rule to get better unique exposure? Yeah, I've definitely pushed the shutter just to bring my exposure down or vice versa. I don't think that it's a rule that you should never break. If you need to bring your exposure down, maybe you forgot an ND or maybe your ND filter isn't strong enough to block out the amount of light that's coming in. Most of the time, people aren't really going to 
care. Uh, if you're shooting at higher frame rates, they're really not gonna care because you're slowing it down and it'll just be a little sharper. One person that would break this rule all the time is Jesse Driftwood. For the longest time, he didn't even use a variable ND filter, I think. He was just shooting with you know, fast shutter speeds and no one even cared. So is there a correct way to manual focus? Um, if you're talking about using like an actual follow focus system, then yes, you would have your talent, you know, hit marks that are on the floor and those marks would correspond with, you know, marks that you would put on the actual follow focus. That would be the correct way to do it if you're doing it manually yourself. A really easy way to do it though is just to find your focus point and put your thumb on the top of the lens, like the very top, like at 12 o'clock, and then find your other focus point and turn it to wherever it is. And then if you want to go from one you know, focus point back to the other, you'll know that one focus point is going to be when your thumb is back on the top of the lens. So that's just a little trick that I learned back when I was, you know, using my T2i. Hi from Mexico. Hola. Can you live just working as a filmmaker today in 2022? In my country, it's hard and I try to find another ways to do it. Maybe start a YouTube channel, start sharing some of the work that you do. And not only will that help you reach like a larger group of people, but it'll also, you know, keep you creating and keep you getting better at your craft so that, you know, you'll actually land more gigs just based on your skill. So yeah, I would say that if you're struggling as a filmmaker, maybe try doing something with YouTube. Um, I know you have a YouTube channel because you're asking me on the community page. So maybe just, you know, start sharing your works, you know, share some of the tips and tricks that you've learned. And yeah, that would be my advice. I hope that helps. <laughs> what camera are you holding in this picture? So they're referencing the picture that I posted in the community where I'm asking for questions. And that was a Canon 1D Mark IV that my buddy bought off of Goodwill Online. And he had it shipped to my house and it was broken. It did not work. So that was me looking through the menus, figuring out why the sensor was fried. <laughs> what helped you get started in filmmaking? How did you get to where you are now? I would just say this is a really like not fun answer, but just repetition. I just started making videos and I never stopped. And I got over the idea of having my videos being perfect. And instead of them being perfect, I just got them done and I put them out. And a lot of my videos, even from three years ago, aren't really that good. Like I can totally admit that, but they're out there and I started and I just kept going and that's what's gonna make you better. So that's how I got to where I am now is that I just kept making videos and I didn't stop just because I sucked because everyone sucks when they first start. <laughs> I've been wanting to start a YouTube channel. I have, but really unsure whether what I say or do on the channel is what I actually want to do. How do you know you wanted to talk to camera and talk about gear and such for your channel? And how do you keep yourself motivated to keep making the videos you make? That's a really good question. I love gear and I love talking about gear and more so I really like budget gear. So one of my favorite things is when I'm scrolling, you know, through Vimeo or something like that. And I see this video that like just blows me away. And then I go down in the description and it says filmed on a T3i. And it just like, it floors me. And then I'm just obsessed with that filmmaker. Cause I'm like, wow, you filmed that on a T3i. Like I couldn't make that with the camera that I have now. And that's what really like motivates me is like, okay, if people are able to do this, then I want to show people that like you can have gear that isn't the same kind of stuff that all the big YouTubers are using. You can still make it look really, really good. And that's why I like talking about gear because 
it's the gear even outside of the camera stuff. It's the lens, it's the lights, it's the microphones that really make your videos good. And I just try to show you how I utilize the gear, regardless of how expensive it is to make good work. So that's what keeps me motivated. I don't honestly like talking to camera, even though I'm getting better at it. Uh, I've, I've mentioned this before, but I actually, I used to have a speech impediment and I still stutter a lot. So, you know, talking to camera and messing up so much is kind of frustrating sometimes, but uh, you just keep doing it and you get better. And yeah, again, I'm not the, the most charismatic or enthusiastic YouTuber, but I do love it. And I'm getting better at it, I think. So yeah, just keep doing what you love. If you don't like talking to camera, you don't have to. You can do voiceovers and just make pretty B-roll videos. And there's a lot of different avenues that you can go down to create a YouTube channel. You don't have to be an on-camera personality if you don't want to. And I don't even think that I am. I'm just some, you know, dude who is in his office and I talk about, you know, filmmaking related stuff. <laughs> Do you know any good books or movies that are good for some filmmaking inspiration? Honestly, I'm not a huge bookworm. I'll definitely say that. Uh, but honestly, as far as movies, I think you can learn something about any movie that you watch. There's a lot of movies that a lot of, you know, cinematographers are just, you know, they rave over, but I'm not honestly that into them. Like a movie with good cinematography, but a horrible story is still a bad movie to me. <laughs> so when I see all these, you know, like these cinematographers, like, you know, like raving about a movie and then I go and watch it and it's like, okay, all this is, is a bunch of pretty images. It's not anything that I would actually want to spend hours watching. I'm not going to mention any movies because I don't want to make anyone upset, but I think you can learn something from any movie that you watch. Some of my favorite things to do though, is to watch the behind the scenes from movies. Like when I was a kid, I would watch the appendices of Lord of the Rings, the behind the scenes featurettes. And that just got me like so stoked about filmmaking because I could see the entire crew working and what everyone was doing and just all the time and effort that went into like one shot. So that's what I would recommend. Like don't watch the movie, go watch the behind the scenes featurette and you can learn a lot from those. And that was the last question. I thought that I was going to get some repeat questions, but I don't think I did. Thank you all so much for asking these questions. This was really fun to answer them. And I'm definitely stoked on this. I think this is gonna work out. If you would like your question read, make sure to go and stay up to date in the YouTube community. Make sure you're subscribed to my channel if you want your name read with your question. Again, you can support me on Patreon. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. So yeah, the way that I'm gonna structure this is I'm gonna do one podcast a month for sure, but I might have some bonus podcasts with some fellow filmmakers that I know. So that could be fun as well. So stay tuned for those. Anyways, thank you so much for watching and I will talk to you all next time. Bye.